The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. Well, good morning again, church. Uh, For those who don't know, my name is Nick Kidwell, and I am the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. And uh, so glad to have you with us. Also, I want to plug, we do have our Fatherhood U class this Friday night as well. Dads and gentlemen, the uh, sign-ups are a little lacking compared to the gals who signed up for the Motherhood U class, so if it were a competition, we're losing, but uh, it should be a good night of fellowship and um, getting to know one another and and hearing from the Lord with regard to being men and being fathers and um, even just spiritual disciples uh, of other men in the church, so encourage you to come out for that. Uh, well, it is good. This is, it's been three weeks since I've been in the pulpit, so I'm really excited to be back to the pulpit. Um, nice to have just kind of a normal Sunday. We've had so much celebration, which has been wonderful, but kind of getting into the rhythm now. You know, we got to celebrate Easter and the, our merge together as two churches with First Baptist Church of Malvern. We sent off dear friends and uh, saints, Bob and Donna Coates. Uh, we had a pastor's college student last week. Well, this week is, you just, you got me, so take it or leave it, whatever you think about that. Uh, but I'm most excited of all to get back into our Matthew series regularly. We've, we've had a break from that. Uh, so for the next few months, it is, you know, full steam ahead in Matthew. And today we're actually wrapping up our series on the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been in for 13 weeks now. We've had 13, this will be the 13th sermon Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, where we've been looking at how disciples are to live, how we are supposed to live in light of the kingdom of God into which we've been brought. And today we're going to close this series out as we're confronted with a decision. What will we do with all that we've heard? And, And we'll see that what we choose to do with this information has massive, massive implications for our lives. As I was meditating on this passage and, and considering particularly one of, the most, one of the most famous sections, I think, of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the house built on the sand and the house built on the rock, that's one that a lot of people know. I had a recent news story keep coming to my mind. A couple years ago, uh, at 1.22 a.m., June 24th, 2021, the Surfside Condominium in Surfside, Florida, suddenly and violently collapsed in the middle of the night, taking 98 lives with it. Many people likely never even knew what was going on. They were deep in sleep uh, when the building collapsed. It was a 13-story building. It's unbelievable to think such a thing could happen with modern construction. Well, it immediately raised questions. How could this metal and steel structure that was only 40 years old, I think it was built in the 80s, how could this 13-story high structure suddenly, without warning, fall to the ground? Well, what became clear as investigators were looking into the situation was that it came about through a series of things all coming together involving design failures, shoddy construction, preventable damage, and ongoing neglect of the structure. Though the building itself was made of solid steel and concrete, the biggest issue was that the original construction company cut corners on the foundation. They had left out very important rebar reinforcements. They had shrunk the size of some of the pillars in the sub-basement. 
in order to allow for more parking down there, and the city had allowed all of this, even though most of these things were not only in defiance of common sense, but also in defiance of city code. So all of this slipped through, and then years of ongoing neglect, overlooking warning signs of cracking foundations, sinking slabs, and rusting metal, one night, suddenly, the building came to the ground taking 98 lives with it. No matter how strong that upper building was, steel, concrete, reinforced, that foundation was rotten from the very beginning. And one investigator in looking at the situation said, it actually is a miracle that this thing stood for 40 years because of the way that it had been put together. And so in the end, the truth of the construction was revealed. It was faulty. And the tower came violently to the ground. Well, here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord lays before us a series of images, all intended to prick our consciences. How will we construct our foundations? What have we built our lives upon? Is it upon the rock? Oh, gosh. I preach off a, a tablet up here, and Siri or something's responding to me. Just got a <laughs> notification about air, airplane mode. That's a first. <clears throat> Sil- yeah, silence my cell phone. Yeah, silence your cell phones. Are we going to build our lives upon the rock, upon a firm foundation, or do we build our lives upon sinking sand? Will we take shortcuts leading to death and destruction? What does the fruit of our life show? So, so if you'll turn with me now, we're in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 29. And a quick note... We're going to mainly be focusing on verses 13 to 29 this morning. We're going to touch briefly on 7 to 12, but with such a long book, we're in Matthew, we sometimes have to make decisions on on how to proceed and handle smaller passages as well as passages that have some repeated themes that we'll be discussing over the duration of Matthew. So in this case, we're going to We're going to read this full section and we're going to tie in the ask, seek, and knock. We're going to tie in the golden rule, but we're largely going to be focusing on the conclusion, the series of images that the Lord gives us at the end of this world-altering message. So pray with me if you would. Father, we come before you this morning. We are in desperate need. I feel in desperate need of you this morning. I ask that you give me a conviction from your spirit to proclaim the truth of your word with clarity, with honesty, that we might be hearers. God, as we read your word right now, we ask that you would work upon our hearts. We ask, Father, that we would understand and root ourselves on the foundation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, any areas of weakness, any areas of sand that we've allowed to slip in, I pray this morning that you would reveal those things for what they are. You would shore up our foundation, that we would stand firm and strong upon Jesus, who is our rock and Savior. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? 
So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. This discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, comes to a close with some final lessons and a few warnings. First, in verses 7 to 11, we get this wonderful reminder of God's eagerness to meet us and to provide. I felt this morning those songs pushed our heart that direction, and I was glad for them. This reminder that the Lord is eager to hear from us. Bring our weaknesses. Bring our Addictions, bring our failings, the Lord wants to hear. Remember, this entire block of teaching has been geared towards those who are members of the kingdom of God, those who have chosen to follow God and place their citizenship in his kingdom, which, as we'll discuss in a minute, means submitting ourselves to the lordship and judgment of his son Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers. And as a conclusion to all of these lessons, on what living in light of that kingdom looks like. This isn't just a rule book, how to be good people. This is people who've been redeemed by the Lord. How do we respond to that redemption that he's offered? The Lord wants to remind us that if we ask the Lord, he will give. If we seek the Lord, we will find. If we knock, the door will be opened. As God's children, if we ask, seek, and knock, In accordance with his will and in a desire to see his kingdom come, we have full confidence that he will meet our needs. It's so easy for us to forget this. There have been several times this week where I realized I was kind of beating my head against a wall working through something and I hadn't stopped once to pray about it and ask the Lord that he would help me in that situation. Well, we get the example given here. If earthly fathers who are sinful 
know how to give good gifts to their children and meet their basic needs, how much more our Father in heaven who's perfect and holy. So this is a reminder for us all. As, as we seek to walk in the ways of the Lord, the Lord will provide for us and be with us. May not always feel like that's true. He may not always answer the way that we would have hoped or in the timing that we would have hoped, but as God's children, He promises that He's working all things together for our good, and He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. So I guarantee you, if you are God's child, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you ask for bread, He's not going to plop a serpent in your hand. He is going to take care of you. And I think the Lord reminding us of this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is very timely. The Lord has laid out for us a list of how do we live in light of this kingdom, a list that feels and is impossible for us on our own to do these things. But this ask, seek, and knock, it applies to our spiritual health and strength as well as physical and temporary needs on this earth. In Luke's gospel, he draws out that implication that if if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our heavenly Father give to us of his Holy Spirit? Church, as we seek to live in light of the kingdom, as we take these principles we've heard from the Sermon on the Mount and we go forth in our lives, we can't do them without the strength of the Lord. But if we turn to the Lord and we ask Him, He will supply the strength to live in light of these principles. So let's ask Him. Let's seek Him. And let's walk in the provision of our Lord. God will answer these prayers of ours. He will answer these things. And He'll answer this and He'll embolden us to do His will, which is that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, and we would love our neighbors as ourselves. Which reminds us, we're reminded of here in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is actually a, a common proverb in the ancient world. This wasn't a unique saying to Jesus or Christianity. This idea of doing to others as you'd want them to do to you So it shouldn't surprise us. This is the law of God written on man's hearts, that we would love other people. And Jesus is taking this commonly known phrase, and he's using it here to remind us to boil his message down to this, humble yourselves before the Lord. Do not consider yourself more highly than you ought. Treat others with the same dignity, honor, and worth that you would desire to be treated. For you are all image bearers of God. One of the problems with the world, and and even this proverb being common throughout the ancient world, there's really no base or anchor to that. Why should I be kind to other people? Why should I do this? Well, the Lord, we know from His Word, gives us support for that because we are all made in the image of God. And we have been shown what the way of Holiness is in how we treat others. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of people who seek the good of other people. 
And by treating them the way the Lord is spelled out here in the Sermon on the Mount, we're loving others, we're pointing them towards their glorious God and King, which is their greatest need that they will ever have. Living in light of the kingdom means following the way of the Master, and it means loving God, trusting Him, and loving those around us as God has patterned for us. This is the law and the prophets. This is what God has shown us through his word. And this now is what the Lord Jesus has revealed through this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. This powerful, authoritative teaching. Teaching that we cannot ignore. If we jump down to verses 28 and 29, which end this whole section, this whole sermon, which began back in chapter 5, we see that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. The scribes taught the commandments of God in reference to what had been handed down over time. The prophets declared, thus says the Lord. But Jesus says, listen to me. Jesus says, obey my word. Jesus, in verse 23, says, I am the judge, and I am the way to the Father. If you want to be with the Father, you must know me. This is astonishing. No one has ever spoken like this man before, and people recognize that. Jesus wasn't just a prophet speaking on behalf of God, but he was yet again declaring himself to be one with God and exercising that authority in his teaching here with his disciples. And as we're about to discuss, he makes clear that we cannot casually then opt in or out of the things that he's saying. So here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord essentially draws a line in the sand. Last week, Philip Uh, who was visiting us, helped us understand that the Lord commands us not to self-righteously judge others. We're not to delight in seeing others put in their place. We're not to walk as hypocrites, judging others for their actions, putting on an air of piety while we ourselves practice the very things that we condemn other people for. However, the Lord here reminds us, just as Philip did last week, this does not mean that the Lord does not remain on the seat of judgment. And it doesn't mean that we're not to call others to repentance and to proclaim truth to them. In verses 21 to 23, we read the Lord say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, I will make a quick addendum, and we'll talk about this throughout the message. This does not mean that good works get us to heaven. Again, doing the works of the Father mean that you have a relationship with the Son, which means you have trusted in faith in Him for salvation of your souls. But if you've done that, your life will be marked by fruit and by works. Our culture says the Bible calls us not to judge, so don't, don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. And while, yes, it's true, we don't sit on the ultimate seat of judgment And yes, we're certainly not to judge hypocritically what our culture fails to acknowledge when it uses verses 1 and 2 of this chapter to try and silence any proclamation of truth is that just a few short verses away, the Lord makes clear a great judgment is coming. Unlike the statement made by liberal progressive 
Christianity. You can look up what that means. They say following the way and teaching of Jesus can lead to experiencing sacredness, wholeness, and unity of life. Jesus makes clear that he is the only way to experience wholeness, life, and relationship with God. And it's not just that he can offer those things, but he certainly does for those who trust in him. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name or do mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a sobering warning. We can be fooled into believing that we know the Lord when we don't. We learn a few things from this. First, Jesus is the ultimate judge. He's one with God the Father. He knows men's hearts and lives. And the only way into eternity with God in heaven is through him and past his judgment. Second, it's truly knowing Jesus, being in relationship with him that brings us into his salvation. We'll dive into this further in a moment. And third, doing good things or simply being good people is not sufficient. We can come to church, we can serve the poor, we can be philanthropic on many fronts, we can lead a a good life, we can prophesy, we we can cast out demons, but unless our hearts have been marked by confession of sin regeneration through the Spirit of God that is obtained through a relationship with Jesus Christ and a life marked by a pursuit of holiness, seeking to walk in the ways of the Lord that He's called us to walk in, then we've not truly known Christ. And we will not obtain the salvation that He offers by grace. That means that we don't judge self-righteously We aren't the arbiters of salvation, but God does give us tools by which we are to, at times, rebuke, exhort, encourage one another when needed, by which we're to point others towards Jesus Christ, by which we're to call the world to repentance and expose the workings of evil, both individually and corporately, and by which we make known that the only way to obtain salvation, which we all desperately need, is through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. That means that while we're to walk in assurance of our salvation, if we've trusted in Christ, we're also to keep watch. We're to spur one another on And we're to observe all that the Lord has commanded. And that brings us then to these three images that we get here in this chapter. We see two gates, we see two trees, and we see two foundations. We've been confronted with the reality that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be with Christ in eternity. In Luke chapter 6, Luke adds further details to this moment when he records Jesus as saying, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I tell you. Only in the blood of Jesus Christ and true submission to Him is salvation found. 
So in this final warning, let's look briefly at the gates, at the trees, and at the foundations to help us discern what life looks like a light, as a light for Christ, a life that really is lived in light of the kingdom of God. So first, the two gates and the way of the Lord. One of my favorite Pixar movies of all time is Finding Nemo. If you're familiar with Finding Nemo, then you'll be very familiar with this scene. Finding Nemo is the story of this clownfish and his son. And little Nemo gets snatched up by scuba divers because he swims too far out to sea despite his father's warnings. Well, then his, his dad, Marlin, sets out on this across-the-sea journey to find his son. And along the way, he meets this uh, hippo, blue hippo tangfish named Dory. And Dory has a memory problem. Dory can't really remember much about 10, 15 seconds back. Well, at one point, Dory and Marlin approach a very dark, very scary-looking ravine. Surely it's full of monsters and sea creatures, and they don't want to go through there, but they look up, and there's this nice blue ocean you know, above them. They can see the sun streaming through. Well, there's some fish that give Dory a warning. They say, when you get to the ravine, you swim through it, not over it. Well, she kind of remembers that, but she can't remember why. And so she's trying to convince Marlin. He doesn't believe her. And he's saying, look up, Dory. Surely this is the way to go, not through this scary dark ravine. So she goes along with him, and they start to go up rather than through. Well, they quickly realize why they should have gone through rather than up, and they find themselves surrounded by hordes and hordes of jellyfish, poisonous, stinging jellyfish. And so Dory has a near-death experience, and Marlin barely makes it out with his life as well. They realize that they had made a mistake. Well, Dory and Marlin chose the path that looked most immediately inviting, only to realize it was actually the way that led to danger. Well, the Lord presents a similar image for us in this snapshot. The, the Lord makes clear that there are only two paths in this life. Either we are for Christ or we are against him. There is no middle ground. We can't think that Jesus is a good teacher but not Lord. That's standing against him. We can't think that Jesus is Lord but doesn't care how we live. That's standing against him. We can't claim to stand with Christ, but be unwilling to endure the hardships that come in a life lived for him. That's standing against him. We must choose who it is that we follow and which gate it is that we will enter. These gates represent not the end of the journey, but the beginning. This isn't a picture of the entrance into eternal life through the gate. We get some of those images throughout Scripture, the door into life. But this is the gate that you're entering into as you make a decision of who you will follow. Choosing to walk the path of Christ, the authoritative Son of Heaven that He's called us to. There's a reality. In these, in these past 13 messages, we have heard some very lofty calls Calls that mean radical transformations of our hearts. Calls to deal with wrongdoing. Calls for us to acknowledge the darkness and the evil that lurks within ourselves. Calls to repent. Calls to suffer persecution and trial on this earth for the name of Jesus Christ. Well, when we stand and we look at the gate that the Lord calls us to enter through and the path that lays beyond it, it can be hard. 
It can look scary. It can look dark. If we've truly understood everything that Jesus has said to us, then we know coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord, while yes, as we'll see, produces fruit and life and joy, it also comes with it a lot of hardship and struggle in this life to the glory of God. And so we can look at that gate and like Dory and Marlon, we can think, man, Going through this ravine is not the way. This looks a lot easier. I'm going to go up and above. I'm going to get around it. And we want to go that easy route, which we see here. For the gate, this is the the other gate. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The Lord's saying here, sin, the enemy, The world, our flesh, proclaim to us that there's a way that we are to follow, and unfortunately, many, many people in this world take that way. They enter the wide gate. Apart from the grace of God, all of us would choose that wide gate. Rather than resist sin, they give in to it. Rather than worship Christ, they reject Him. Rather than confess their sins, they deny Him. Rather than suffer for the glory in the name of Christ, they abandon him to feel comfort. So often it's tempting to think, how easy life must be for those who don't choose Christ. And in one sense, yes, Scripture here acknowledges that. On this earth, there are some ways it's easier not to follow Christ. If you don't want to have to fight sin, if you don't want to have to exercise faith, if you don't want to have to confront truth, if you don't want to have to stand out as a light and have a target on your back in a fallen world, then yes, there's a broad path and there's an easy one for you to go down. But do not be deceived. That path may seem easy, it may seem comfortable for now, but that path does not end in life. That path like all the other images that we will see soon, ends in destruction. Christ reiterates, in each one of these, there's destruction at the end of the way opposite to Christ. The psalmist in Psalm 73, I really appreciate this psalm. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to. He describes how he had become envious of the wicked. He saw those who were not following God and they were prospering. He, say they're, they're, he says that they're fat and they're sleek. They're eating, they're drinking, they're being merry, doing freely as they choose. And because of this, he says, my foot almost slipped. He says, is it all in vain that I've kept my heart clean? I'm sure many of you can relate to this feeling. You're seeking to follow the Lord. You're trying to do the right thing. And somehow, other people seem to be getting ahead. Or somehow, life just feels harder. He says, my foot almost slipped. All day long, I who pursue God, I'm stricken and rebuked. Well, the psalmist entered the narrow gate, and he walked in the hard path, but at times he envied the party that he saw going on in the wide way. But then the psalmist continues, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them on slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a minute. 
swept away utterly by terrors, he's reminded, though the way is hard, and though in some ways the wide road can seem easier at times, all those walking in the drunken stupor of sin along the wide path will one day drop off of the cliff that they are unaware is waiting them. But on the narrow path, as the psalmist continues, you guide me with your counsel, and is the way always hard? No, he says this, and afterward, you will receive me in glory. Life and joy and fullness and the glory of God awaits us, though the way may be hard at present. At times, it's not all labor in the Lord, but glory awaits us. He tells us his yoke is easy and his burden is light. That doesn't mean we won't face hardship, but what that does mean is we won't feel the weight of condemnation. We won't feel the weight of self-righteousness. We won't feel the weight of wondering if we've stacked up enough to be with God. We have freedom in all of those things. But there is challenge to walking for him. But we, we read elsewhere in the scriptures, though, that this light and momentary affliction that we face is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. And we're also reminded that though the wide path looks easy, there are actually many pains and many snares, not only in the time to come in judgment, but on this earth as well. We know the tangled mess that sin makes. And it may feel good for a moment, but we've all seen the fruit of it in our lives and in the lives of others, and it doesn't play out well. So let's not be tempted to walk in the broad path. Living for Christ produces the most joy, the most peace, and ultimately the most fruit in this life and in the one to come, which takes us to the second image. So we see the, the two gates in the way of the Lord. Now we see two trees and the fruits of righteousness. The Lord begins with a warning about false teachers. There's some who will come seeking to teach his disciples and lead them away from God, whether knowingly or not. We see this play out very clearly in some of the New Testament epistles we read about. There are false teachers coming in, trying to teach people ways that are not of the Lord. And unfortunately, that problem still persists today. Whether it's the prosperity gospel or a salvation that's based upon works or the diminishing of the nature and the value of Christ or, or the high call he places on our lives or any other message that does not first and foremost uphold Jesus Christ and his word, the fallenness of mankind, our need to repent, the salvation that's ours in Christ to the glory of God, then that message is not of the Lord, because that is the core of the truth of God, His glory, our fallenness, and the goodness of Christ Jesus who came to set us free, the Son of God, one with God Himself. And if someone comes preaching something other than that, then they come as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And the Lord helps us know then, how do we recognize that though? How do we know if someone is leading us astray? And I encourage you, church, Use these yardsticks to evaluate me in my life. As someone who stands up here week in and week out and says that I'm bringing the word of the Lord to you, you need to be discerning. 
He says that we'll know them by their fruit. In fact, this is how we should be able to begin to, sin, to discern the work of God in our own lives and of any person that we encounter. We don't know ultimately. The Lord only knows, but we can look and see, is there fruit in a person's life? Fruits of the Spirit or fruits of the flesh. Jesus says, you will not taste sweet fruits of grapes and figs from thorn bushes and thistles. If we're following the Lord, if we're walking in the narrow path, then our lives should be marked by good fruit. And what are those good fruits? Well, we're told elsewhere in the scriptures that the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It says, against such things there is no law. We should expect that if we're abiding in Christ, we should see the fruits that the Lord has been teaching on. Love and righteousness in our affairs with other people, purity in our hearts, and passion in our pursuit of the Lord. Now, there is some hyperbole here. The Lord says every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Does that mean that a follower of Christ will never bear bad fruit? No. We know that's not the case, not on this earth. We know that in this life, we will continually wage war against sin, and like we have to do in our gardens with our trees, pruning bad branches and limbs is a necessary part of the gardening process. What about the rotten tree? Will a rotten tree ever produce good fruit? Yeah, sometimes. May not be as healthy and vibrant as it could be, but there will be edible fruit that comes nonetheless from that diseased tree. So what then is the difference? How do we know? Well, it's the core of the tree. The difference is the healthy tree can be expected to bear good fruit because its roots are good, its trunk is healthy, it's on a trajectory of life and growth. Pruning it is not futile because you know this is a healthy tree. The diseased tree, though, though it may produce some good fruit, it can't be trusted upon. There's rot in its roots. There's weakness in its trunk. And efforts at pruning it only delay the inevitable. You may, in fact, be cutting off the only branches that might produce some kind of fruit because the tree is diseased. And without some complete rebirth... There's nothing that can change that. The only thing that that tree is good for, we see here, is that it be cut down and thrown into the fire. If we've received Jesus Christ as our Lord, then even though we may put out rotten fruit at times, and I know there's rotten fruit in my life at times, I know all of you, there's some rotten fruit out there too. That's all of us. We should be marked by repentance and a fight for holiness. Even though we may sin, there should be the twinklings of the fruits, buds on the tree, beginning, growing in our lives. If we've seen Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, if we've entered the narrow gate, we should see ourselves being renewed as we age, however big or small. And this, this will look different in, in different people's lives, and we've got to be patient with our brothers and sisters in Christ, because some will put out, put out what seems like a whole harvest, and some, there's just little, little glimpses of that growth that's coming, and that's where the Lord is patient with us, 
we're patient with each other, and we're continually pushing each other on towards Christ. But if there's a hardness of heart, a refusal to repent, and a general indifference to sin, we have to ask, is the tree actually healthy or is it diseased? When Jesus tells us to watch out for the wolves, we should be able to see from a person's way of life if they're following the Lord. If they're not, then we aren't to trust their message. We mustn't follow them in their teaching because they will seek to lead us to the wide way, the one that's headed for the cliff. Church, we must be discerning. This world is full of false teachers and sometimes the most loud false teacher we hear is the one inside. It's the flesh. It's our hearts seeking to lead us astray. But by walking with Christ and abiding in Him, we will produce fruit. We will persevere, revealing that His saving grace truly has been at work, that He is at our core. And this perseverance will show that we've truly built ourselves upon the rock, which brings us to the last picture. So the two gates, the two trees, and now two foundations and the bedrock of Christ. The Surfside condominium was doomed from its date of construction because it was on a faulty foundation. Even with the best upkeep, without a new foundation being built, that tower was doomed to fall. Christ makes clear that the only way we can build a life that will persevere, the only way to experience eternal joy and peace and life and strength is by making Him and His words our foundation. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. This is, again, astonishing not anyone who hears the words of the Lord, but anyone who hears these words of mine. Jesus makes himself the authority. It's only his words that bring life. It's only his way that leads to God. There is no other. It's not Oprah. It's not your parents. It's not your teachers. It's not the talking heads on TV. It's not Charles Darwin. It's not Gandhi, Muhammad, philosophers, or even yourself. It's only the words of Jesus Christ that speak truth and life to our souls and that we're to build our lives on and around. We must be on guard against setting up false ideas in our hearts, listening to voices outside of Christ for peace. If we hear things that don't line up with what Christ is saying, we know that's not of God. Because when we do that, when we believe false ideas, when we let other things in, what we're doing is we're mixing sand into that mixture. That concrete is weaker, weaker, and may show itself in the end not to have been set upon Christ at all. When we do that, we cut corners. We cut out vital rebar. When we do that, again, we may just be revealing that we never truly understood the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And on that day, there is a day coming when the winds will blow and the floods will come. Sometimes trial in this life are those winds and those floods that show a faith to have not been rooted on Christ. And there is a great day coming when judgment will come and all of our foundations will be tested. 
And if we have not built on Christ, we will not stand. You see, some people, I fear, take Jesus, and what they do is rather than having him as the bedrock of their foundation, they just stick him inside the building. He's not the foundation, but he's just some aspect of their lives. Well, the problem with that is, imagine taking the foundation of a building and trying to stick it inside. It's going to destroy that building. The building was never intended to just have it be part of the structure. It'll cause all the timbers to collapse and the walls to fall in on themselves. And we get that imagery. Christ is a rock that crushes. No, that foundation is at the base. It is what everything of our lives is to be built on and around. Christ is not just part of our life. He is all of our lives. Christ must be the foundation. We must not be fooled. A day is coming, as we've said, where all of our foundations will be tested. There's a great day coming when Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, will return. And He will expose what path we've truly walked on. And He will reveal the roots of our trees. And He will make clear what stood at our foundation. And church, I don't want this message to be one that just feels heavy and condemning. We're not, we're not to lack assurance of our salvation The Lord makes clear, if we've trusted in Christ, we are sealed by His Spirit. So we should say confidently, I am sealed. There's neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor powers or authorities that can separate me from the love of God. We proclaim that. But there is a reality that if we look at our lives, and it just doesn't seem like anything quite lines up with what Christ says or who Christ is, we have to question Have we actually trusted him? Can we actually proclaim that truth in our lives or do we need to repent? And if you're in this room and you've not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then know this, you've not yet entered into the kingdom of God. When you die or the Lord returns, like the broad gate, the the sickly tree, and the sandy foundation, your end will be destruction. It will be eternal separation from God and eternal and justified judgment for your rebellion and your sin. This was the situation of us all. Apart from the mercy and grace of our Lord, none of us could be confident that we wouldn't be swept away in the judgment. I exhort you today, just as those people in the Surfside condominium did not know the fall of their building was imminent, so too for you. You do not know the day and the hour of your death. You do not know the day and the hour of the Lord's return. And apart from Him being your foundation, you will not survive. Yet the Lord stands, eager, eager, and ready to forgive. Each and every person on this earth, the Lord stands eager and ready to forgive and to welcome them by His grace. So long as there is breath In our lungs, the invitation to come to Christ remains. And to the rest of us, we who've been graciously redeemed by our Lord and Savior, not because of works, not because of anything that we've done, but because we've been given the gift of faith by grace, let us walk then in light of the kingdom. Let's heed these warnings. The way may be hard at times, but eternal rest is coming. The winds may blow strong at times, but our Lord will not let us fall. And we do this together. 
That's why we gather on Sundays to be strengthened together, to hear from the Lord together, that we can link arms and walk in this world as the Lord's called us to, that we would be lights pointing to the grace of God. Don't listen to the world, listen to the Lord who stands ready to receive us whenever we ask, whenever we seek, and whenever we knock. We have a good Father who has lavishly given us His Son. Let's believe Him when He tells us the way of life, and let's pursue that life together. We are people who have been redeemed. Let's live like it's true. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace, Lord. We thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, for us to offer us salvation. We thank you that you've made a way of life for us. Despite our sinfulness, despite our rebellion, despite our pig-headedness at times, you are patient and you continue to offer a way of salvation. I ask, Lord, that for each of us in our hearts that we would feel full assurance of the salvation if we have accepted it in Jesus Christ, but that we also would be discerning, that we would be wise, that we would be faithful, and that we would be seeking your ways. And I pray for any in this room who have not yielded to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they would experience the freedom that he gives. I pray that you would guard and protect them from the day of judgment and that they would build their lives upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. Thank you for this offer of grace. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray that this morning has been glorifying to you, glorifying to him. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.